Our initial vision has always been to provide an end-to-end financial service to consumers. And the thesis has always been that if we understand about our users' finances, then we are able to provide them with the right financial products. We don't want to like cross any lines or if it's gray area, then maybe we shouldn't do it. So I think like just coming to a realization that sometimes you still need to push the boundaries a little, like don't break any rules. If it's stated in the rules, don't break it. But if it's gray area, like we should still pursue it because that is where innovation kicks in. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua, and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Welcome back to One More Scoop and to our first episode of 2024. I know I'm feeling super recharged and relaxed after the holiday break, and I'm sure you are too. So for today, I'm speaking with Reynaldo Tendeyan. He's the co-founder of Finku, a personal finance app that serves 700,000 Indonesians. Their app solves the inefficiencies of financial planning through seamless tracking, spending analysis, and helps support Indonesians receive access to financial products as well. In 2022, they raised the $2.8 million seed, led by B Capital. Hi, Ray. Nice to finally meet you today. I feel like I have been following you guys since we covered your raise last time. And I've been really excited to chat with you. I haven't been to Jakarta yet, but you're definitely somebody on my list that when I come and visit, I'm going to see you hopefully. And maybe some of the people on your team would love to hear more about you and the kind of work that you do. So to start, I'm going to ask you the same thing I ask everybody to start the podcast. And that is, what was your childhood like? Were you born and raised in Jakarta? Yeah. Hi, Amanda. Well, thanks so much for having me and Finku in your podcast. So it's a huge privilege to be here. And nice to finally see you, I guess, like in person versus just in LinkedIn posting, you know, the back scoop content, right? Which I really enjoy reading as well. Thank you. Yeah. So just quickly about myself. Childhood-wise, I grew up in Jakarta for the entirety of my life. I'm not sure if this is some details that you want to know, but my childhood dream was actually to become a professional soccer player. But having Asian parents who are not very supportive of that dream because a career as a footballer is not very lucrative, right? Like, you don't earn a lot of money there. And from Asia, it's kind of hard, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So in the end, like, As Asian parents, they kind of like brainstormed me into like, oh, you should study engineering. Eventually studied, you know, material science engineering at Berkeley and then worked multiple jobs, um, did consulting and then also worked at Sumitomo Electric Industries in Japan and then worked at Kiva.org, which is a microfinancing company based in San Francisco, which kind of also influenced me into learning more about financial inclusion and which eventually made inspired me to actually create Finku as well back home in Indonesia. I know I kind of skipped a lot of the childhood, <laughs> but I guess that's like the high-level timeline. <laughs> I mean, it's helpful. It's helpful. So now I have a timeline that I could refer to. So when you were growing up in Jakarta, what kind of influence did your parents have? Were they like really professional in the sense of like one of them was a doctor, one of them is a lawyer? Yeah. So parents are all entrepreneurs as well. So 
in that sense, like seeing them growing up, running their business from something like small, uh, like started from nothing to something that is actually running sustainably and actually big enough to actually support us, right? To go to school abroad. That actually also inspired me to like, okay, I need to be able to do something like them, right? They're able to drive impact to the people around them in their community, but at the same time also have a good life for themselves and for their kids, which I mean, inspired me as well to do the same. So they wanted you to study engineering. Did they want you to be an engineer or was it just like you should study engineering? Because I remember my parents wanted me to study engineering, but not necessarily work as an engineer. They said, if you're an engineer and then you become an entrepreneur, that would be pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) No, yeah. So it's they didn't force me to study engineering. They didn't force any of my brothers as well to study engineering. But eventually, all of us ended up studying (laughs) engineering, right? Different forms of engineering, but we all did. But what they did, I think what they tried to do was just more of like brainwash you in a more subtle manner, right? Like when we're having dinner together, they'll be like, oh, so what do you want to study? What I heard is that it's better to study engineering because if you then want to go to business, you can always do that because you can learn that, you know, as you go. But if you want to go to engineering, then you won't be able to do that because you need to learn technical skills, right? So in that sense, it's more of that approach that they took. And in the end, because they keep saying that, eventually, what do you think? Like, oh, engineering is the right major to take. And that's how I ended up studying engineering and material science as well. Did you like engineering? Did you like material science before you got into the major? Like, was it your interest maybe in high school or? (laughs) No, that's a... Yeah, thanks for the question. So why I chose engineering uh, was because of my parents. But then the problem that I faced was more of like, okay, what engineering should I study? Because there's a lot of different engineering majors, right? Like environmental, construction, electrical, computer science. So I looked through all the list of engineering majors out there. Because I back then, I guess as a kid, you still don't know what you really like and what you don't like. And you also don't really fully understand, like, what does this major cover, right? So in the end, like, how I went about it was I looked through the list of majors and one of them was, okay, what is a major that is unique? What is a major that not that many people are taking so that, quote unquote, I can also stand out, you know, like, stand out in the sense where like, okay, there's not that many people doing this. So it's a rare type of major, rare type of skill. Maybe that can be helpful for me in the future. Then the second one was also like, I knew I, at least the things that I liked was like math, chemistry, physics. So in that, it also helped narrow down like what type of engineering major I wanted to take. And from those two, it kind of boiled down to chemical engineering and material science. But the last factor was also thinking like, what is like a problem that I'm intrigued about that I would like to solve and that my major can actually help me solve it. And have you been to Jakarta before? A long time ago. I stayed there for like a month. So that was five years ago. <laughs> oh, okay. And when you came here, was it rainy season and was it flooding a lot or no? It was sunny. So summertime. Oh, it's sunny. Yeah. Okay, okay. But essentially, like when I was going to college, like around 2014, during the period of 2010, 2014, like floods were like prevalent in Indo, right? Like it was just happening everywhere. And I was staying in an area where waters can go up to your waist. You know, oh, right outside the door. Inside your yeah. house too? Like if you open the door? Well, thankfully, it didn't go into our house because it's quite high up. But other houses around the area, it also went went in. 
But other neighborhoods sometimes are, you know, they're fine, which is our area. And this, that was like a problem that kept happening. And as a little kid, we were happy, right? We were happy, like, oh, we didn't have to go to school. Like, yeah, yeah. great, you know, we can just <laughs> chill at home. We have a reason I'll go to school. But over time, like, I think as you get older, you realize it's a nuance as well. Like, okay, like, it kind of disturbs your day-to-day. Like, oh, you need to go to school. You, you have these commitments. It kind of stops you from doing that. And I got intrigued about this. And what I realized why our area was impacted by floods a lot is because we live by a river. And in that river, it, people like to just throw trash like everywhere. And they throw trash into the rivers. And it also clogs up the drain from the river. Uh, so such that the river. It was more about like having trash in the river. I thought that the flood was caused just by the river. Yeah, exactly. So it's because of this trash. And I knew that, okay, like if you tell Indonesian people like, hey, don't do this, it's going to be very hard to like change their behavior and to make them do what is right, right? So it made it interesting. I was like, hey, what if you just change the material that they throw such that when they throw it, perhaps like plastic or whatnot, it could like biodegrade in water or change shape such that it doesn't clog the river. And I thought like, oh, that's quite interesting. And materials are also like the building blocks of everything right around you. And I fully believe in terms of like, if you want to excel in anything, you need to be really good in the foundations. Like when I studied physics or math and I'm solving a physics problem, like however complex it is, as long as you go to the law, like Newton's law of first law of motion or whatever, but you understand that law very well, you can solve any problem. So with that, I was like, hey, I think material science is interesting because like I can solve some problems around me, but also it's the foundation and building blocks of everything. So if I want to make an impact in anything I want to do, like this could be an interesting major to study. So that was the rationale of choosing material science. I know that was quite a long story, but of course with my career now, like being in FinTech and also in consulting, Long story short, I did not really enjoy my major, like sitting in a research lab, which is why then the career that I have right now. So that's how you decided to move out of engineering and into consulting. Exactly. But I, I still stuck through like graduating with a material science major, but I enjoyed studying it. I enjoyed the basics of it, but I just didn't enjoy implementing being it? a professional, yeah, oh, implementing okay. it and being a professional in the research lab. But there were some quite cool roles of like, you you can be a consultant as a material scientist, but it's quite niche in Indonesia, right? It's yeah. more like abroad. And I knew I want to go back home and kind yeah. of like contribute back in Indo. Do you remember like what your interests were when you were a kid? Apart from your interest in what was happening in the river, was it just like football and sports? Mm-hmm. Did you have like any other like long-standing hobby from your childhood? Interesting. Well, one for sure, it's sports, just in general, like I just love playing sports and specifically, of course, like football slash soccer, wanted to be a professional soccer player. That didn't happen. I was also interested in, I mean, with the entire river thing, I got interested in waste management, right? Just because of the yeah, problem happening around. But other interests. I actually can't think of any other interests. <laughs> I'm quite of a boring person. Really, really like uh, into soccer. And you spend most of your yeah, time yeah. guessing. No, exactly. You thought yeah, you were into yeah. like waste management. So how did you like pursue that interest? Did you build like a waste management project? Or did you try to go to the river nearby your house and try to fix it? <laughs> yeah. So back home in Indo, I didn't do any projects like that. But when I went to the US, like when I studied at Berkeley, 
I actually joined an environmental consulting club. Uh-huh. So it has a like, it's like consulting, right? But it's more focused on environmentally focused clients. And during that time, I was lucky enough to get a client that is essentially like a waste management company called Becology based in San Francisco. And yeah, I think that intrigued my interest even more because they were trying to essentially the entire flow of like collecting waste from people's households, separating the waste, educating them as well, and then converting these waste into something that's actually valuable, right? Extracting the value from these waste. And from there, I was like, when I came back home to Indonesia, that was actually like one of the ideas I was like, okay, I think I should actually create something like that in Indo because we don't really have a back then, at least 2018, 2019, there's not really like a huge company that is doing this, right? There's a lot of what you call like those pamulung, right? Who just comes and picks up a waste from each household and whatnot. So I started collecting the plastic bottles that we have at home, like then separating them based on the different types and whatnot, and then trying to like sell it as well to different people. But then it eventually never became like something big. Yeah. Kind of like tested it in the market, but I was like, yeah, maybe the market is not ready. But actually now there's a lot of waste management startups, right? Like that's actually doing well. Oh, okay. I think I've seen like one of them. The name kind of sounds like Octopus. I forgot. Oh, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's multiple too and they're doing well. So I was like, oh, great. You know, it could have been me, but uh, it's not me. It's okay. I'm happy with them. too quick. early, but not <laughs> the sense for it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. What made you want to study overseas? Was it like the urging of your parents or did you see your brother study overseas and want to do it? Or have you always just wanted to study overseas? Yeah. So I think it's also because both my parents also studied abroad in the US. So it became like a just an unspoken thing that in default, we're expected to study abroad for better education. And yeah, from my side, of course, like, I think during that time, it was more of an unspoken thing, but I also wanted it seeing like my, because I have one older brother and two younger brothers. So as you mentioned, I was able to see my older brother studying abroad, living independently, and also like, yeah, meeting people with different perspectives that helps you grow as well. So I think in that sense, it made me like, okay, like I think studying abroad would be good for me to just be more independent, to get more perspectives and yeah, and the end is also to get a better education so that I'm also able to contribute back home, right? But I know that's not the, you don't necessarily have to do that to be able to bring a huge impact back home. But I guess that's the path that I took. Mm-hmm. And so when you studied overseas and you went to the US, what was your experience like moving there, coming from Indonesia and living there for, I guess, like four years, right? I don't think you did a math. Yeah. So it was a very hard transition actually for me to kind of elaborate like how hard it is is that when I moved there during my first year I think I lost like five to six kgs uh, in my first year yeah I lost weight instead of gaining weight because usually people gain weight right there's the the term called like fresh yeah Yeah. freshman 15 (laughs) but instead for me it's the other way around like I lost weight rather than gain weight if I look back in hindsight the reasons for that would be I think one, I went to only one school in my entire life, like from grade one to grade 12. Yeah. Um, it's called National High. And they follow like an A-level program. And 
on top of that, my graduating class was only seven people. Are you serious? Wait, high school or in university? University in high school, in high school, in high school. Wow. Okay. Yeah, my graduating (laughs) class is only niche college major, but now I'm shocked. (laughs) No, in in my high school, just because like it's a new high school. I mean, grade one, I was. It's the first time they open like primary one, and I'm the first like, yeah. And a lot of my friends actually moved to like this and just as to get like an IB program, right? And I would think like because of that, I kind of like did not really develop that social skills in terms of interacting with people who are completely different than me. Like yeah. I'm so not used to it. You know, I'm just like in this bubble with like yeah, seven people, right? So I think that's one of them. Did you start with seven? You didn't start with seven people in grade one, right? So in first grade. No people were you and how did like (laughs) yeah it started with like 40 people but slowly like people kind of moved out to get an ib program to increase their chances to get into a better college and whatnot and then slowly it just reduced from 40 to 7 my goodness Um, okay (laughs) yeah so in grade 10 i was also contemplating like should i actually move out of you know this school into another school right like i was also considering like going to high school in the US and because mm. it, it could also help me with like pursuing playing football soccer at the higher oh, yeah, level sure. too yeah but it was kind of like I think time was ticking and we couldn't really make a decision so I decided okay fine just just stay it's okay I mean didn't really regret the decision because eventually also ended up getting into Berkeley right so which is a school I also wanted to go to so I guess that's one of the reasons socializing was a bit hard but the second part is also that for me, like studying in high school was very easy. Like I didn't have to like stress too much and I was getting good grades. But when I moved to Berkeley, everything was like 10 times harder. <laughs> like all the classes were harder. But that like my mentality was like, okay, I have to get good grades. Like I have to get like a 4.0. Like I cannot have any rooms of like, you know, poor grades. Yeah. So with that, I was just like studying like crazy and to a point where I forgot to eat and whatnot. And so that's, that's why I lost it. The stress and yeah. the lack of eating. <laughs> yeah. So it's just like, you just keep studying to a point, oh, it's already 8, 9 p.m. or I should grab some food, you know, like stuff like that. But over time, I figured out how to balance it out and adapt into the environment. So it got better ever since the first year. So in the first year, you weren't really socializing that much. So I guess you also had maybe your own little bubble of seven people. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like I wasn't also socializing too much in my first year of college because I was studying a lot. But because I think I didn't have like a support, I'm like perhaps like the the part about socializing is I could expect that rather than studying alone, I could have studied others, right? I could yeah. have like tried to socialize and like tried, okay, let's work on this together, let's figure out together. But because perhaps of the barrier there, I just like, okay, I'm on my own and I'm gonna work on it on my own. And because it's a niche major, there's no other like Indonesians taking that major oh. as a freshman. Like I was the only one. You would have to really socialize and meet like someone entirely like new who likely didn't have that much in common with you. Yeah, exactly. So I think that was like the tough part for me. I remember when I transferred school, I came from a school where I think there were like 60 people in the grade. I was there for about yeah. four months, And then I transferred as well to like a more multicultural yeah. school. And I remember oh, wow. yeah. after graduation, I was like, I realized I didn't talk to that many people. <laughs> like, you know, like you talk like hello or yeah, you do exactly. 
the project, but then after that's over, I mean, you're not really developing friendships. <laughs> so I think I did the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> and why, why is that for you? Like, is it more because you're more of an introvert or? I think I had a similar mindset where I'm here to study and get good grades. I will make my friends that I'm comfortable with. I mean, they're also yeah. from different countries and different cultures. So we're all practically all Asian. So I don't think I talked I to see. a lot of outside that circle. And there, I think I only studied on my own or with them. And then outside of that, I don't think I tried to meet more people outside of the circle I already built maybe in the first few weeks. If mm. that makes sense. Like once I had that circle, I wasn't trying to make more friends outside of it. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. And I think for me, looking back, I would have put in more time actually like socializing with different people just more so like i guess like learning about their culture learning about their perspective learning about how they live right like i feel like now that i'm back home in indo yes there's still that opportunity but you don't have as much time to do that because yeah. of all the commitments that you have right yeah i agree yeah. i feel the same way i realized like there are opportunities i could have made friends as well like there are people who are friendly but i guess i never took the bait right <laughs> like if they yeah said- you never say hello you only say hello back but don't try to continue the conversation <laughs> exactly exactly it's okay i think these are the things you can pass down to your kids so they don't repeat the same mistake don't be like me <laughs> well so after the first year you said you adjusted pretty well so when was the point in your major when you decided like okay this is not really for me was it in like the second year or only towards the end actually it's during my first year second semester in my first year that's when I started like, hmm, actually, maybe this is not really for me. Because what I did was in my first year, second semester, I worked in a research lab, like working with semiconductors and whatnot. And that entire experience just opened my eyes like, oh, wow, I'm just sitting in the lab and working on my own without kind of like socializing with others. But the good thing about it that I took away from it is that I enjoyed the process of like, problem solving, forming a hypothesis, seeing the result, and then reforming your new hypothesis and testing it. So that's something I actually really enjoyed. So with that, I was like, hey, I think consulting is something similar to that from what I heard from a lot of my friends. And being in college, like actually consulting, banking is like, you know, the hot careers to pursue, right? So I'm not going to lie, like that was also a bandwagon that I kind of jumped into like, oh, I can also try consulting and banking and whatnot. Because when I went to my second year, essentially, people are starting to look for summer internships and whatnot. And I knew that it's going to be very hard to find an internship in material science, whether it's in the US or back home in Indo, right? Because if it's in Indo, I mean, it's such a niche skill set that no one is really looking for a material scientist. If it's in the US, they typically look for third-year students. That's when you kind of have more of the technical skill set. So I'm like, okay, I don't want to be lazy in the summer and not do anything because everyone else is doing something. So I tried to like apply for a consulting internship back home at BCG as a sophomore. And luckily, I actually landed the internship at BCG. So during that time, it opened my eyes into like, oh, wow, I actually really enjoy doing this. Like hours were crazy until like 2, 3 a.m., before that three months, like I really enjoyed it. I felt like I learned more than, you know, the two years of college, right? So I'm yeah. like, oh, wow, this is definitely like a full time that I believe I could do. And by then, like I knew that consulting something I wanted to do. And most likely it's not material science, 
but I didn't want to live with regrets, right? Like, okay, just double down in consulting and banking and just Never drop this, this entire... <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's why, like I told you before, as my last internship, I actually worked at Sumitomo in Japan as like a material scientist. And from there, it was just more of like, okay, let's really prove like, is this something that I want to do? Or I really, yeah, to prove my hypothesis again. Once I did it, I enjoyed the entire experience, of course, like working with those people, doing the problem solving, but it solidified my hypothesis that, you know, like, okay, material science is probably not for me as a career. Uh, most likely it will be around consulting and just being able to interact with people in a more day-to-day basis while problem solving. So I guess by that internship, I was convinced that no material science. Okay. Yeah. And then outside of like the academics and like the internships you did, what kind of person were you in university outside of those things? You said you didn't really socialize in the first year, but that changed. So what yeah. did you do outside of those things? Did you play more football? Did you play basketball? Yeah, actually, it's more um, definitely one football and exploring nature. Because I told you like my dream was always to be a professional football player. So when I went to college, then I was like, okay, at least this is one opportunity for me to take it to the uh, another step, like another level, right? Compared to just playing back home in Indo, which is just uh, for my school. Initially, I wanted to join like the D1 team in Berkeley. And I tried, like I was, I kind of like emailed the coach and I was like, hey, can, can I join the team? Like, can I try out? And then the coach was like, oh, can you submit videos of you like scouting reports about you, right? I'm like, what? Like, I don't even have any scouting reports about myself. So I was like, huh? What's a scouting report? Scouting report is more of like, usually like there is like videos. I mean, I think something you have to create yourself, but you know, videos of you playing, right? A, a match, like maybe some of the goals that you scored, some of the assists that you make, some of the key plays that you did to showcase like, about your skills like a cv but for so- soccer basically right okay yeah but i didn't have that at all i'm like oh okay maybe their level or their baseline is much higher compared to indonesia so i'm like okay maybe not the d1 but i saw there was the club team at least it's one level be- below d1 it's not sponsored by the school but you still play against other schools around the state so you go against stanford you go against like university of san francisco maybe you go against oregon so you travel but you have to pay it yourself, right? And the players are mostly students who really enjoy playing football, but perhaps have no time or doesn't qualify for the D1 team. So with that, like I pursued that and I thought like, okay, I think I'll do fine. So when I tried out for the first time, the level was so different. Like oh, their fitness level is so much higher. Level. You knew yeah. the first day? Yeah. Like the fitness level, I mean, tryouts were like five days. Right? Okay. When I tried out for the first time, I made it to the second day and third day. But then I got cut up like on the third day because the fitness level is so much higher. Their technical skills are so much higher. And these people are not only from the US, but everywhere right, around the world who loves playing football. So people from Europe and whatnot, who does not maybe call for D1, they go to the club. But then because I really still want to be a, pursue this, I tried out again for the second time. Made it to the fourth day, but got cut again. And then tried out again the third time and finally made it. Oh, you made progress over like the three times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was honestly like a lot of perseverance because it was 
crazy. Like after tryouts, I would have fevers after. Are you serious? On like the same, so it's five days. So like the first day you get a fever, then you show up the next day. Yeah, you just show up the next day and you don't feel like super good, but I just push through it, right? And when you play football, like adrenaline just kicks in and you just don't feel it. So then afterwards when you go back, then you feel a bit sick again, but you, you have to come again. And it's spaced out too, like the first two, three days is like together, but then the fourth, fifth day will be three days after and three days after. So at least, yeah, there's some period. But it was just that intense for me. Like for others, it might be fine. But for me, it was intense. It was just like, it opened my eyes like, wow, like the level is just so different. But it was like a super great experience, like participating, joining, at least like it made me like fulfill something like, oh, I got closer to my yeah. dream, even though like I, you didn't I wasn't there. To reach your dream. Yeah. The fact that you didn't give up after three tries, I guess you couldn't tell yourself like, you know, I didn't give up. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So I was, I was happy about that. And I uh, also played intramurals. And that's where I met some of my friends from South America, which who I'm still friends with right now. I guess that's about football. And then yeah, the second part is like nature hiking. Because if you're in SF or in like the Berkeley area, there's a lot of like nice places to go to, right? Like Yosemite, you can go hiking there. You can go to Tahoe. You can drive down as well, the highway. So just like we're just really enjoying like nature while I'm there. So actually just those two things mostly. So when you're playing football, what was the most interesting thing or like impactful thing uh, during the process? Apart from like the experience doing it, but like what did you see in the yeah. other people? For sure, one is that it opened my eyes in terms of how broad in terms of people's skill set is in terms of football itself. Because living in a bubble in Indonesia, I just thought like, oh, I think I'm good enough, right? And just seeing all these other people, it opened my eyes like, wow, actually, like the skill levels is so wide. Like this is only club, right? It's not even yet like D1. It's not even yet professional soccer. So that's one. But the second thing is I realized like, oh, wow, there's more people who is as passionate or even more passionate about this sport than me. Because I would see people who, you know, they'll take their time like in the weekend just to go for a jog to actually train their stamina. Like a part-time job that specifically trains their stamina? Oh, not part-time jog. I mean jog. like jog. Oh, jog. Like, uh, they're jogging around just more to build their stamina. They're playing pickup. They're, play- they're, they're practicing themselves. So really like people who are really passionate about the game, possibly even more passionate than I am, right? So I'm like, oh, wow, this is amazing. The Third thing, though, like definitely that I see is that I do realize like football, there is more than just sprinting fast or like being able to score goals or physique wise, you're like really big and strong. But it's also about football IQ because the best player in our team back then was not someone who is super fast. He's not someone who is really built big. Yeah, he's just like a midfielder who can control the ball very well, move really well, make the right passes, has really good vision. So actually, it opened my eyes to that because when I was playing back home, it's purely just, okay, try to run as fast as possible to pass through different people, try to dribble dribble past people and try to score. But there's more to that, right? So I guess those are some things I I observed while while playing with them. I feel like when you described it, it feels like it applies more to more things than just football. (laughs) No, agreed, agreed. I think in everything, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so after 
you graduated, what made you end up at BCG? Were you looking to get into finance at the time or was like BCG your first choice since you interned there before? Was it a difficult task getting in? <laughs> no, for sure. Well, for me, like my end goal, because I saw that my parents were entrepreneurs, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur as well, like to kind of like have more control in the impact that you want to deliver. With that, I wanted something that can help equip me to increase my probability of success, right? To be able to do that. And what I've heard from different people and seeing successful people is some of them have backgrounds in consulting. And when I talk to people, they mention like, oh yeah, consulting helps build you to have like this foundation to build this professional like, toolkit. So then it goes back to my thinking of, okay, having the right foundations are important, right? Going back to material science and like studying. So I thought, okay, like I have to like pursue consulting. And I also enjoyed it from my summer internship. So when I was graduating, I was thinking, okay, should I stay in the US or should I go back home to Indo? And but what I prioritized was that I wanted like a really good job that can help me learn. It doesn't really matter where. So with that, I didn't want to put all my eggs in one basket. I knew I interned BCG already before during my sophomore year. So applying to BCG as a full-time should at least be easier compared to if I did not have that internship. So I did Jakarta for BCG. And for the other consulting firms, I did in the US. But unfortunately, I didn't get any offers in the US for consulting from the top consulting companies. So I decided, okay, like let's just go back home to Indo to do a consulting at BCG. But of course, given I'm already in the US, I'm like, I need to get some internship experience or working experience in the US so that at least I know what it's like. So with that, that's how it ended up where I worked at Kiva for a year. Yeah, part-time for four months and then full-time for four months because I was still like studying for the first part of it. And so when you joined BCG, did you have like a timeline? Like, okay, I'll learn enough within three years or four years and then I'll go start my own thing? Or was it more like open-ended? Like, I'll join BCG and then I'll leave and start my own thing when I feel like it. Like, when I feel like it's the right time. I actually didn't put a timeline for myself, but a lot of people who enter consulting mention like two to three years is like sufficient for you to learn the professional toolkit. So the way I took it was like, when I came in, my focus were like one, okay, I want to build my professional toolkit, which they mentioned, okay, it takes around two to three years and at least get like one promotion to kind of validate to yourself or even others that, hey, like I can do this. I have the professional toolkit. The second one was that I wanted to figure out what industries that I liked and didn't like because that's the benefit of being in consulting where you have a broad spectrum of clients. So you, you can be put in multiple industries and figure out at least what you don't like, right? Process of elimination. If you can't find what you like, at least you eliminate things you don't like to kind of help like with what you want to do in the future too. And the third thing was also like, I guess the brand name and the network that you get from there were like the three objectives that I was trying to focus on. And at that point before moving out, I have like these check-ins with myself as well, like quarterly or like yearly, right? Like, okay, where am I at? What do I think about this? And I felt like I achieved those three objectives already. And when all those three objectives are already met, then kind of like, okay, what should be the next step here? Of course, for myself, like I didn't expect to start my own company immediately. 
I left it open, right? It's like, okay, like eventually my end goal is to do this, but I'm sure like if I don't want to force to build something or work on something that might not work for the sake of just doing it. So I mean, open up the possibilities like, okay, like maybe work in a startup first, learn about how to execute because consulting was more strategy. Maybe we can, I can be more of an operator and execute. Perhaps I could also explore maybe the VC side to understand more about the startup landscape. It's kind of opened up all those possibilities while still being in consulting. On the side as well, as they mentioned, if you don't start working on it, then nothing will happen. So I thought like, hey, why not just start thinking about what problems exist, start thinking about executing it, and then slowly just starting like, yeah, working on Finku on the side. And eventually it comes to a point where Finku needed all my attention. So I thought like, okay, perhaps this is the right time now to jump and just work on this. So Finku was something you're doing on the side. Was it like your first side project or like first startup idea during your time at VCG? Or was it like one of several ideas or several side projects? Yeah, it's one of several. Because like I told you before, I was actually exploring. Actually, the first ever one is like a non-tech idea, which was like basically selling, you know, Grobak, right? You know, no, the, Grobak. Oh, basically, or like Warung. Warung, I'm sure oh, you yeah, know yeah. Warung, right? Yeah. yeah, essentially, like, we were trying to create affordable, healthy fried rice on the side of the street. And that was, like, the first ever, like, side. Your own physical shop, you mean? Yeah, exactly. Own physical oh. shop. Yeah, I mean, we hired people to be a chef, like, kind of create the ingredient to somewhat make it. So I think that was the first ever idea, but it did work out. How long did it take uh, to decide that it wasn't going to work out? <laughs> like, eight months. It just didn't work out. Like there's no product market fit there. And then the second one was a more tech idea, which is on the waste management side. Like I was like, huh, I was quite intrigued about that. So I tried to create a concept or an app about, okay, picking up waste from households and then separating them and then reselling them to these manufacturing companies, right? That can process these recycled materials. But I think I did like some sort of NVT testing just to test whether the market's ready, but there's not much demand coming through. Like I was doing Facebook ads to see like, okay, would anyone actually like click through this and message me and request for my services? But no one did during that time. So I was like, okay, maybe the market's not ready. And I tried the more B2B approach as well, but it seems like it's already saturated too. So with that, I was like, okay, maybe it's not the right timing to do this, right? Uh, and then just dropped it there because I was also busy with my full-time job. And then the third one is working on a sports management app. So basically sports booking, like being able to book futsal fields, badminton fields and whatnot. Is that why you invested in the company like IO? I saw you yeah, like a while back. Was that the yeah, same yeah, exactly. you were working on or is that like, you saw them and you're like, hey, I worked on before. So I will, I want to invest in it. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. So like what they did is exactly what I wanted to do. And I was like, okay, if I cannot do it like on my own, because I don't have unlimited time, at least be involved in initiatives or things that intrigues me or I'm interested in, right? So with that, decided to actually invest in them. But thinking about timing too, I realized like back then, if I have started it too, like then there's the pandemic, right? There's COVID. And then, yeah, everything kind of stopped too. So in a way, like timing-wise, it didn't really make sense as well for me to work on it then. Yeah, so that was like the third one. And then after that, yeah, it was just like Pintu. 
So after Pinto, Pinto yeah. was the fourth. The fourth one, yeah. So when you were doing it like on the side, how did you go about it? Was it just you and your co-founders or did you have other people with you already? Did you like a small team at the time before you went full-time yeah. or only hired a team after you went full-time? So basically, we started first just with the co-founders, me and Sham first, thinking about the idea, understanding more of the market, validating if there's any pain points. And then as we were building it, we realized that personal finance, especially for Indonesia, is something that is seen as a taboo as well. Like people are intimidated by it. People want to avoid it if they can, right? Because if they see like, oh, I spent so much, then they feel sad or depressed about themselves. So we're like, okay, I think we need to have a strong area in terms of design, in terms of to change their perspective. Hey, personal finance can be fun. So that's how we met like our other co-founder, Sheila, who eventually joined us. And when we validated it enough, we actually hired an engineering software house, right? To actually help build the first prototype first for us. So yeah, that's how we ended up doing it. And I guess like fortunate enough as well for myself is that while I was working on this, I was still in BCG and I was in a case that was working on a, like a digital ventures project. So they were, we were working with a corporate to try to think about what startups or solutions that could actually leverage their assets. And they ended up being in the industry of like ad tech and also health tech. But like the methodologies they implemented were something that was like skill sets that was helpful for me in terms of, okay, like uh, in terms of how to assess the market and whatnot for the fintech side. So I think the timing and all the timing also kind of lines up, you know, to help with actually thinking about the idea. Do you believe that everything happens at the time that it was supposed to happen or not? Yeah, hundred percent. I totally believe in that. Cause like, yeah, in hindsight, I was like, oh, I was lucky enough to get this project. And then there was COVID, which means like, you know, you're not traveling, you're not meeting friends enough. You have so much idle time. And then somehow like I got reconnected again with my co-founder because we haven't been talking for a while. So then it kind of like, yeah, everything just lined up perfectly. How did you know when it was time to go full-time? You said that at some point it needed all your time and attention. So what did that look like? And how did that signal to you that like, hey, I have to quit my job and go full-time? Yeah. So of course, one part of it is like the workload. Just thinking through about, is there enough workload for me to do? And if you have 40 hours in a week, that's like one indicator. Because during that time as well, we were moving towards actually starting to build the app phase. And you know, someone needs to like work with the engineers like day to day and whatnot, right? So that's that's one of the indicators. The second indicator as well is more of just trying to answer the question of if I were not to put because in the end, like the the goal is to get the startup to succeed, right? So the question that I was trying to answer myself is like, if I don't put all my time into this, will it reduce the probability of success? And while thinking through about that, suddenly as well, there's a lot of like competitors coming into the space. Somehow just suddenly like there's more competitors coming in. And that angle as well is like, oh, okay, if we don't put in our time into this and, you know, there's these other competitors coming about, like, are we reducing our chance for success? And the last one that overarcs all of this is, I think like the Jeff Bezos, like regret minimization framework, right? Oh, yeah, More yeah. Of, like 
Yeah, exactly. So like that's the thing that I also go back to. Like, hey, would I regret if, for example, I don't take this risk, take this jump, and not work on it? Right? Like, would I regret this more? And I felt that I would. So in the end, decided to just you know work full time on it. Was it also about like the attraction as well? At a certain point, was there a lot more attraction had to like go full time, or do you think it was really about like the hours and like attraction? One small part of it. Yeah. No, that's a good question. Actually, during that time, honestly, it was more on the time rather than the traction. But you're right; there is actually the traction portion where during that time we were still in a waitlist mode. We have not launched the app, but we got enough indicators that oh, customers were intrigued about our product. Customers actually want our product. I mean, we only got like by then like a hundred people in the waitlist. But when we were talking to these people, like. They were actually really excited, and they really wanted to use our product. We were never worried about like, oh, could this product scale? Because when we looked at benchmarks uh, abroad, and we, when we looked at the alternatives that they are using in Indonesia, which is like the manual tracking apps, there were like three million people just using manual tracking apps, right? Inputting it manually. Oh, in Indonesia alone. Yeah, in Indonesia alone. Wow. Okay. So with that, it's like okay, if we create a solution that could remove all these like manual efforts, we're quite confident that these people would actually use our solution, right? So we were never really like concerned about okay, we need to get at least like more users before uh, we're confident enough that it would work. I'm curious, like it's been almost three years, right, since you started it. So what's been the hardest part of building? Like looking back, even when you're working yeah. part time. Even like on the personal side while building Finku, I know like building this also impacts like your life outside. <laughs> no, no, for sure. Now that you say it, definitely, I guess every phase has a challenge on its own, and you kind of try to evolve as like a founder to solve these problems so that you can go to the next level type of thing, right? Like a game, right? Unlock it after the challenge. Yeah, exactly. So. I believe the first big challenge was actually trying to compartmentalize like work and personal life, because in the start it was completely like yeah, work is life. You know that that was like when you start, it was just that, and you know things from work kind of impacted my personal life because yeah, work was just everything in the start, and with that like that first phase was okay. Like then realize it was really bad. For myself and for my personal relationships, so、I、had to figure a way to like compartmentalize it. Right, work like stays at work, then personal life stays at personal life. You try not to let it impact one another, because there will be times like, okay, I'm supposed to take time off, but instead you're thinking about work and you're supposed to rest, but you are working, right? So,、um, in the end, like try to learn just to okay, how can I compartmentalize work and personal life and not let Work affect my personal life, and how can I make such that when I'm supposed to rest, I am resting so I can give my best for work when I come back, right? Because there's the thinking about when you're not exactly thinking about your work, your unconscious mind is also still functioning and thinking, and sometimes you come up with solutions during that time and you find inspiration during that time, right? So I think that was like one of the challenge. Then the second challenge I would say as well is like managing a team. Or managing a company is also not as easy as it seems, and especially as when the company grows, like when you were just like five, six, seven people, perhaps it's easier to manage. 
But when you become like, you know, 30, 40, then a new challenge also comes about where you have to learn to, well, of course, one, hire well, right? Because you can't do everything. But two, as well, you have to learn how to manage them well and give them the right amount of ownership in order to feel empowered and to feel motivated to do their work but at the same time to catch them when they're about to fail. So I would say that second part also required some time as well to learn as I go. I, I'm sh- I've made a lot of mistakes, but I guess like learning from them as you go, right? I think I'm interested with the, the, the second thing you mentioned. So managing a team, right? Like before Finko, had you ever managed a team before? Or did you ever have like a direct report before? I'm not sure like yeah. what the is like at BCG. Yeah. I would say I've never managed at a scale of Finku in my prior experiences, but in BCG itself, like as a senior associate, you get an opportunity to at least manage perhaps a business analyst or one associate with a couple of interns, right? So you have your own module that you need to drive. And in your module, you kind of like figure out how to break it down and distribute tasks to your colleagues, right? So in that sense, you get like small part of managing, but you're just managing one of your module and people are supporting you in their task, right? So different from like a company and then you have even like, even a company where you have three direct reports is very different from that kind of structure. Correct, correct. And even at Finku at the company level, then you have to think about, okay, what is the you know strategic direction for us? What is perhaps the key KRs that we need to focus on, even among the leadership team, we need to like really align on where we want to go and to ensure there's no miscommunication in terms of how we want to move forward. And on top of aligning in the leadership level, then there's also aligning with your subordinates, right? So I think on that side, yeah, it took some time to adjust and figure out the right leadership style. But I think one thing I learned as well is there's no one right leadership style, right? Like there's many different leadership styles. Is that why? Like, okay. Yeah, exactly. Because even internally, we see like everyone has like their own leadership style. But I think just figuring out the leadership style that works for you. And of course, like the people that you're working with is important as well. So I had the phase where I'm like, am I doing this right? Am I being too like strict? Am I being too lenient? Like, how do you find that right balance is something that took some time as well. What do you think was like a painful lesson you learned in terms of like people management? Hmm. A painful lesson. Actually, I would say like, because naturally as an individual, I'm more on the strict and I'm not the most patient individual as well at work. I do get feedback like, oh yeah, being too strict or impatient might not be good and yeah i also agree with that like i completely agree and because of that then i started okay like let me try a different style where i'm more lenient i give more room for errors but i mean of course you can give room for errors i I don't mean it that way but more of like just more lenient as a whole right and in the end because of doing that it feels like people start taking advantage of that like were you too lenient was that the reason (laughs) Like a phase where like, okay, let me try to be more lenient. And I just felt like things are not as progressing as fast as it should be. Then I'm like, okay, wait, this is not working. Like then just finding that right balance, perhaps like taking out emotions 
to the side, but like still being strict and trying to tailor with different people based on how sensitive they are as well. If someone is too sensitive, then have to choose the right words or find the right occasions, understand when they prefer to get feedback, like all those things like taken into account. And I guess with that, then I start like appreciating my prior managers even more, like learning how difficult it is actually to manage people. It's actually not as easy as it seems. Earlier talking about how you said the second challenge, like the people management, what have been the next challenges in terms of like the different phases that you've been on in the past few years? Of course, like, being in the fintech space like one big challenge is always like dealing with regulators and finding that area of innovation because actually looking back when we first started as a very small company we weren't as exposed to the regulators as much so our mindset is more of like i guess like more like rebellions where we're like okay like you know let's just do whatever that can drive impact right we didn't really look too much into the regulation and whatnot we're just like hey this is impactful so it wasn't about changing the system it was just like let's do what we want to do without changing anything yeah of course there were like aspects where we looked into like the regulations and like okay is this allowed or not looking back we're not as rigorous in terms of like okay we need to check with the regulators can we do this or not and whatnot because we weren't really exposed yet in terms of how do they work like can we even reach out to them like you know so we were just like, okay, regulators-wise, like in the undang-undang, like there's nothing that states we cannot do this. This is impactful. It might be gray area, but let's just do it. So we just did it. And in the end, like what we did also had some pushbacks from the regulators as we were building it, as we were growing, as we grew into scale. And because of that, then we became more mindful. Like we became like, we want to innovate, but at the same time, we don't want to like cross any lines or... If it's gray area, then wait, maybe maybe we shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So I think like just coming to a realization that sometimes you still need to push the boundaries a little, like don't break any rules. Like don't, if it's stated in the rules, don't break it. But if it's gray area, like we should still pursue it because that is where innovation kicks in. If you don't do it, then if you approach regulators, they would just say no. But if it's gray area, like you should still room push for it, you know? Yeah, exactly. So I would say like that is one of the challenges. Uh, We were pushing more on, okay, like let's not do anything in the gray area and kind of slows us down. But I think now it's more of like, okay, like test it first. You don't even know if this would even work. Maybe the the concept does not even work. Like why try to stress too much of like something that is gray area, right? So I think that would definitely also be one of them. They were talking about like building products and features in line with like the regulations and the gray area. So like the past years, how has the product sort of changed from like maybe your original vision or the original product that you had? Yeah, our initial vision has always been to provide an end-to-end financial service to consumers. And the thesis has always been that if we understand about our users' finances, then we are able to provide them with the right financial products. Given as well, what we see in Indonesia is that financial literacy is low, right? means they're not very educated about this and they don't know what is the right product for them, which is why the financial product penetration is also very low. And also there's other issues about access of data, right? Like credit bureau coverage is also low. And for those who have access, it's not accurate, which makes it that it's hard for people to get access to products that can be helpful for them. 
that is why we created this thesis, right? Like, okay, understand about people's finances and offer them with financial products that's right for them and that, that they can access. So how the product has evolved that we started off first with financial tracker app to automate everything and to, to be able to get a 360 degree view of their finances. And then once we were able to do that, it's time to monetize, right? So with that, then we moved into the lending space of offering, of course, partnering with the right licensed partners to be able to offer a lending product, like cash loan, a digital credit card, and, and whatnot. So that's how the app has evolved over time. We have not shifted from our thesis, and that's what we've been doing yeah, since day one. I think like having written about different startups in fintech for a long time with Backstreet and like seeing what else has been happening outside of Southeast Asia in terms of fintech, I think lots of companies range. Right? Like I think lots of people start a fintech, but I think after like the two to three year mark, you see some like. Mm very quiet, not really progressing or shutting down. Like, what do you think has helped you guys survive up until like this point? You know, three years is still like, you might think it's shorter, still surviving longer yeah. than the average, I think. Well, definitely one is that when you have an opportunity to raise and receive money, I think it's always good to give that or just to take that money and give you some buffer in terms of your runway. Because I think we were lucky on this, to be honest, because like post YC, there was demo day and we we just raced right before YC and we were like, okay, should we raise again? Like oh, continue the like round? Soon. Like for some Yeah, exactly. So we took more money as well post YC. Post YC, that's when the, the market starts crashing, right? For FinTech. So yeah, we were lucky there because we were contemplating, should we, should we not? Like we actually don't really need it. But yeah, I think the lesson there is like, you don't know how the market will behave. So it's better to take more money than less, right? Because of course, like a business with zero value, even if you have a lot of equity is, is zero, right? Rather than, yeah. So I think in the end, in hindsight, the lesson is just, if you can take more money, yeah, you should take more money because it also increases the chances of success as well. But the second thing as well from our side, we've always tried to be as frugal as possible in every element that we do. So like there's a lot of like credits that are offered by a lot of providers. So we've always been very frugal in terms of all of our decision, right? Like we tried to leverage all the credits that exist and any alternatives that are cheaper that still meets our needs. So I think like those two components kind of like helped us uh, in terms of like managing the runway. In terms of the first one, right? I think you always hear about horror stories about people who raise so much money that it becomes so difficult for them. So how did you like determine like, okay, this is enough or this is going to be too much while also raising more than you expected, right? Because you did say you would raise a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, from our side, what we aimed for was at least like to give us enough runway. So we knew that we had a milestone like for our Series A to hit certain milestones and with that like we kind of like just played out all the scenarios right like okay best case scenarios conservative ones worst case scenarios how can we still meet our series a with the worst case scenarios and assumptions possible so while still like not diluting ourselves too much and something that we're happy with because of course that second part of how much are you diluting? Are you happy with that? That's like, there's no one right answer to that. It just depends on you yourself, right? I think for us, like what we prioritized was 
if we believe like we have enough runway for the business to succeed, that's the number one importance. Then the second one is like, okay, are we satisfied with this? In the end, like if we want to increase the chances of success, like like that is the most key for us, right? So in the end, like we were able to just come up with a decision among the founding team. Got it. Well, thank you, Ray, for all the details. So I'm going to let you go soon. I have one last question that everybody else on the podcast, and that is strictly outside of work. What's one thing that you want to achieve in your personal life at any given time? You could achieve this when you're like 70, 80, 90. <laughs> or it could be like next year, right? It's just that it could be anything yeah. you want to achieve. For me, I think it's if I can... Is it football again? <laughs> I mean, there, there's one part to that, but now that you asked me this question again, like my answer kind of changed compared to maybe two, three, a year, two years ago. For me, like if I'm like 70, 80 or 90 and maybe like even I'm dead or something, like I want to be able to create like some sort of system such that we're able to support people to actually reach their dreams, whatever their dream is. And why my answer somewhat changed is because like initially I was just thinking, okay, like, because what I'm passionate in is like sports, waste management and fintech, right? Financial inclusion. So I'm always like, okay, like I'm doing something in fintech now In sports, like, oh yeah, at least I started something by investing in IO Indonesia. Waste management, I haven't been doing anything there, but hopefully like, you know, I can somewhat you contribute there. And like the long goal is like, okay, maybe I want to have my own football club, you know, for sports. And with the goal of pushing Indonesia to be able to be like a top football country in the world, like that's the goal, right? That's like a dream. Then I was like, hey, actually, like, ideally, like if I can create a system to be able to not only like serve for myself, but serve for others as well, right? A system where like, oh yeah, this person has a dream, like, how can we help this person reach their dream? Not only to help myself, but others as well, right? So I think, you know, like if I could actually do that, that would be quite awesome. So whether that's like an NGO or like some other thing. Yeah, exactly. It helps other people achieve their dreams. Okay. Well, thank you. Well, I think we'll have this podcast uh, record that answer and then we can always check in on you to make sure you get on and do that sometime in your life. <laughs> no, of course, of course. That'll be awesome, actually. Hopefully, yeah. In Hopefully. 20, 30 years, like, hey, Amanda, like, apparently I've already created the system. Great. <laughs> <laughs> and we can make another podcast about that. Well, thank you so much, Ray. Thanks for your time. It's so nice to get to know you better. Yeah, likewise. Let us know if you're ever in, like, indoor or anything. We'd love to meet up in person. Thank you.